Welcome to the Evidence-Based Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Kathy Thompson. I'm a nurse infopreneur and creator of the website nursingeducationexpert.com. I am also faculty at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and Indiana University in Indianapolis. Welcome. In this podcast, we'll look at the accuracy of diagnostic testing and look at the parameters that we need to consider when trying to maximize the accuracy of the test result and minimize the probability of false results. These diagnostic parameters include sensitivity and specificity, predictive values, and likelihood ratios. So let's get on with it. This is part three of the podcast series, An Introduction to Clinical Statistics for Evidence-Based Practice. The first part, we talked about concepts of clinical epidemiology, including morbidity or frequency measures of incidence, prevalence, and incidence density, as well as research designs that provide incidence and prevalence data. In part two, we talked about measures of clinical significance, differences in group outcomes. So we talked about the difference between p-values and confidence intervals, intervention effects such as effect size, a two-by-two table, and we talked about measures of association of risk, relative risk, relative risk reduction, odds and odds ratio, as long as other risk estimates of absolute risk and absolute risk reduction. We also talked about measures of clinical effectiveness, in particular, how to calculate the number needed to treat, number needed to harm, number needed to screen, and the interpretation of those numbers. We also talked a little bit about how we summarize results visually using a forest plot. So now in this unit, we're going to talk just a little bit about diagnostic testing. We're going to look at a clinical scenario and look at the accuracy of diagnostic testing. So we're going to come back to the two-by-two tables. We're going to look at sensitivity and specificity, diagnostic screening tests, predictive values. We're going to talk a little bit about pretest probabilities and likelihood ratios and post-test probabilities. Those particular diagnostic tests are going to be particularly important for those of you who are going to be advanced practice nurses, such as nurse practitioners, and anybody who is providing primary health care. These are important concepts. Let's get started. So we're going to start off with the patient scenario. You have a patient who comes into the clinic and they're presenting with certain signs and symptoms and the clinician suspects that, that the patient has a specific disease. Now the truth, and truth being kind of in quotes there, is that the patient either does or does not have a disease. So how do you find out what the real truth is? An accurate diagnosis. So the clinician does a history, a review of systems, a physical exam, and then has to decide which test to use to help make the diagnosis. The test result will either be positive, that's presumably that the patient has the disease, or negative, presumably that the patient is free of disease. The clinician then has to wait the following into the decision that they're going to make. The effectiveness of the test, the risk to the patient, the cost, etc. And the goal, of course, is to maximize the accuracy of the test result and minimize the probability of false results. 
So for the advanced practice nurse, you need to be familiar with how to determine the accuracy of diagnostic tests. Those who will be primary care providers, again, like nurse practitioners and certified nurse midwives, will be responsible for ordering the tests and interpreting the results. You will not be able to order every test possible for a certain disease state because your organization will monitor what you're ordering. They'll limit what you can order and possibly reprimand you for overordering. In addition, you have to remember the impact of diagnostic testing, physically, psychologically, and economically on the patient. You'll want answers to questions like, which test is more likely to produce significant results? Which test is less prone to error? You'll be reintroduced to concepts of sensitivity and specificity that you probably first learned in either health assessment and or in advanced patho. We know that statistically, the more tests that are conducted, the greater the chance of finding an abnormal result. It's been estimated that if 20 independent tests are conducted on a healthy person, there's a 64% probability of having at least one abnormal test result because of the reference or the normal range of diagnostic tests. Because reference ranges are determined for 95% of the population, the other 5% of healthy patients will have a test result that's abnormal. Although the test result may be abnormal, it does not imply the presence of disease. That's a quote from an article by Nancy Siflarski that I really like, that I use a lot to teach differential diagnosis. We will see how pre- and post-test probabilities, and in this case, likelihood ratios, will help with test selection and provide a more explicit and rational selection and interpretation of diagnostic tests as compared with sensitivity and specificity. So the contingency table or the two-by-two two table in your handout shows you how a two-by-two two table is set up when the researchers are interested in testing a new diagnostic test against the current gold standard. When the reference standard, also known as the gold standard, shows positive results, that correlates to the condition being present. Negative results are interpreted as the patient is free from the condition. In this case, the gold standard or the reference standard is considered to be the truth. So you see the two-by-two two table, and you see that the columns are reference standard positive, or you can say gold standard positive, and gold standard neg negative. And in this case, the goal of the research is to try to see how well an alternative test does against the gold standard. The rows are the diagnostic test is positive and the, or the diagnostic test is negative. And if you look at cell A, that is a yes for diagnostic test positive and a yes for, for reference standard positive, that would mean that the diagnostic test is matching the reference standard. And so in that case, it's considered a true positive. When the diagnostic test is positive, but the reference standard is negative, then that's a false positive result. Because in this case, if we're saying again that the reference standard is the real truth, it's really whether or not the patient has a disease or not, then in this case, the diagnostic test is not giving a true result. And that would be a false positive. Cell C is the reference standard is positive, but the diagnostic test is negative. So in that case, again, that would be a false negative because the truth is the patient really has the, the disease, but this new test is saying that they don't. 
And then when the reference standard is negative and the diagnostic test is negative, that's cell D, and that is a true negative. In other words, the patient really does not have the disease. Just remember that the reference standard is a proxy for the true identification of disease. So the desired outcome, of course, when you're testing a new test is that it accurately identifies patients with and without disease, at least as well as the reference standard does. And sometimes, of course, new tests come out because maybe they take less time to develop than the reference standard, maybe they're less costly, etc. So those would be reasons why we would want to test a new test against a test that we know gives us true results. When the new test provides a positive result, identifying the patient as having the disease or the condition, if the reference standard also shows a positive result, then that comparison adds to the credibility of the new test. If the new test identifies the patient as having the disease, but the reference standard picks up that the patient really doesn't have the disease, then that would show that the new test is not as good as the gold standard. Does that make sense? So pay attention here because these concepts are fundamental and there are subtle differences between the terms. With all diagnostic testing, the clinician is hoping that the results of the diagnostic testing are accurate and accurately is defined as the test correctly identifies patients with and without disease. So patients with the disease who have an abnormal test are labeled true positives. That means the test correctly identifies them as having the disease. Patients without the disease are true negatives. That is the test correctly identifies them as not having the disease. However, because few diagnostic tests are perfect, there's a potential for the results to be in error. So when patients with disease have normal test results, they're classified as false negatives because the test was incorrect in identifying them as free from disease. In the same way, patients without disease who have positive tests are classified as false positives. Again, because the test result was inaccurate, or incorrect in identifying them as diseased. By the way, remember that we don't know the truth. And you as the provider, you don't know really whether the patient has the disease or not. So you don't know whether or not these patients are false negatives or false positives. And the consequences, you'll think that the false negatives don't have disease and you'll look for an alternative diagnosis and possibly prescribe a treatment that could worsen the patient's real disease state. And you'll subject the false positives to, mo to more possibly invasive testing and or treat them for something that they don't have. So it makes sense that you want to test with the best accuracy as possible, right? Calculating the sensitivity and specificity predictive values, and likelihood ratios of diagnostic tests help the clinician to ascertain to what extent a certain diagnostic test is prone to false results. If we have a gold standard, why do we need to evaluate other tests against it? Well, sometimes the gold standard test is not available to patients due to geographic location or finances, or the test may be burdensome to the patient in time or effort. It may be uncomfortable to undergo, and perhaps a simpler test is just as valid and reliable. New technical techniques can instigate the need for testing also. 
So let's start with sensitivity and specificity. The sensitivity of a measure indicates its ability to correctly identify patients who truly have the disease. Sensitivity tells us how well does the test identify true abnormality. Or another way to put it, among patients who have the disease, what percent will have an abnormal test and be diagnosed? When a test is very sensitive, the proportion of truly diseased persons with false negative results is uncommon, but false positive results will be increased. Many times clinicians perform diagnostic testing as screening tools for disease or to confirm a suspicion of disease. A highly sensitive test is usually the first diagnostic test that's ordered because it correctly identifies people with the disease and has few false negatives. We say that highly sensitive tests can therefore rule out disease. That is, if a test is highly sensitive in identifying disease, then a negative finding, that is, the patient is free of disease, virtually rules out the possibility that the patient really has the disease. A mnemonic that is used to help remember this rule is called SNOUT, capital S, little n, capital N, O-U-T, SNOUT. This stands for when a sign or a test or a symptom has a high sensitivity, so SN, sensitivity, high sensitivity, if you get a negative result, the big N negative, that rules out the diagnosis. This corresponds to a very high negative predictive value, which we'll talk about in a second. So for example, the sensitivity of the stress test for diagnosing coronary artery disease is 90%. Therefore, a person who has a negative stress test, it rules out the diagnosis of coronary artery disease. However, keep in mind that a sensitivity of 90% means that the test will miss 10% of people with the disease. So 10% of people will be told that they are normal or healthy when in truth they really have coronary artery disease in this case. Those would be those false negatives. Now specificity of a measure tells us how well a test correctly identifies normal or it's the proportion of truly non-diseased persons. Specificity helps us determine the answer to the diagnostic question among patients who do not have the disease, what percent will have a negative test and be correctly classified as normal? When a test is highly specific, a false positive result is uncommon. Therefore, if a test result comes back positive, the disease is ruled in. The mnemonic for, rem for remembering this rule is SPIN, capital S, little p, capital P, N, SPIN. This stands for when a test or a sign or a symptom has a high specificity, a positive result, capital P, rules in the, di the diagnosis. And this corresponds to a very high positive predictive value. For example, the specificity of a fluid wave for diagnosing ascites is 92%. Therefore, a person who does have a fluid wave 
that would be a positive result rules in the diagnosis of ascites. And again, a specificity of 92% means that the test will miss 8% of people who are healthy. So 8% of people will be told that they're ill when in truth they do not have ascites in this particular case. Those would be the false positives. Sensitivity and specificity are probabilities, so the results will be between 0 and 1. The interpretation of the accuracy of these measures follow that the closer sensitivity is to 1, the more accurate the test is at correctly identifying diseased individuals. As well, the closer specificity is to 1, the more accurate the test is at correctly identifying healthy individuals. The number of false positives is 1 minus specificity. The number of false negatives is 1 minus the sensitivity. Few tests have both high sensitivities and high specificities. Increasing one test factor usually lowers the alternate value. So when we're using tests as screening tools, you want a test with high sensitivity to find as many diseased patients as possible. The clinician also selects a test with high sensitivity when it is important to identify a disease process or condition because you don't want to miss an important diagnosis. So the use of rule-out testing is often employed when clinicians face a complex diagnostic problem that has a broad differential diagnosis. The clinician knows that the more sensitive the test, the more false positives to expect. Therefore, realize that further testing will have to be done to separate the true positives from the false positives. Clinicians might consider using a test with high specificity when the consequences of a positive diagnosis could be devastating to the patient. The higher specificity decreases the proportion of false positives. In diagnostic and screening tests, the probability that a person with a positive test is a true positive, that is that they really have the disease, is labeled the positive predictive value or PPV. The probability that a person with a negative test is a true negative, therefore truly does not have the disease, is labeled the negative predictive value or NPV. Predictive value answers the questions, given the results of this test, does the patient have the disease? What is the probability of disease? The calculation of positive predictive value can be considered as, out of all of the positive test results, so the total number of true positives and false positives, what percentage accurately identified the true positives or the patients with the disease? Negative predictive value can be regarded as out of all of the negative test results, so the total number of true negatives plus the false negatives, what percentage accurately identified the true negatives or the patients without the disease? Predictive values are determined by the sensitivity and the specificity of the test and by the prevalence of the condition for which the test is used. 
These values are only valid if the proportion of the diseased people in the sample is representative of the proportion of diseased patients in the population. So therefore that the random sample is truly uh, representative of the population. Probabilities decrease uncertainty. 100% probability is completely accurate and of course that's the ideal but we don't see that very, very often. A high positive predictive value, for example, let's say a positive predictive value of 97%, tells you that if a person has positive results for the gold standard test, the likelihood that the patient truly has the disease is high. A high negative predictive value, for example, a negative predictive value of 97%, tells you that if a person has a negative result for the gold standard test, the likelihood that the patient truly does not have the disease is high. And then predictive accuracy is the total number of accurate diagnoses divided by the total n. So it's the total number of true positives plus true negatives divided by the total. Okay, so this is the number of patients in whom the correct diagnosis, whether positive or negative, is made. Let's look at the two-by-two two figure. The columns are coronary artery disease present, coronary artery disease absent. Those are the columns. And then the rows are looking at how well the stress test predicts coronary artery disease. So in this case, you have disease as the column, so truth, present or not. And then what was the result of the stress test? Was it abnormal or was it normal? If you notice, we have a total of 200 patients. And the true positives... In this particular population, 90 out of 100 patients had an abnormal stress test and really had the disease. So sensitivity is calculated as the number of true positives over the total number of patients who had coronary artery disease. So 90 over 100 gives you a, a sensitivity of the stress test of 90%. Now, specificity says if the patient is normal or does not have the disease, how well does this test predict that? So in this case, 80 patients out of 100 had a normal stress test and were really disease-free. So the specificity of this test then would be 80 divided by 100 or 80%. So now let's look at the same numbers, but let's look at how the predictive values are calculated. So again, the subtlety in the definitions, predictive value says once we have the results of the test, what's the probability that the patient really has the disease? So in this case, again, the column is CAD positive, CAD negative. The stress test was abnormal is the first row, and the stress test normal is the second row. Same numbers. We haven't changed the numbers. But notice that the calculation is different. So for positive predictive value, we want to know how well do the results of the stress test accurately predict disease. 
So in this case, the positive predictive value is the number of true positives, so 90, divided by the total number of abnormal stress tests. So that's going to include the true positives and the false positives. So that would be 90 over 110. So the positive predictive value of the stress test is 82%. The negative predictive value is calculated the same way. Now you're looking at the number of true negatives, which was 80 in this case, cell D, divided by the total number of negatives, both the false negatives and the true negatives. So that would be 80 divided by 90. That gives you a negative predictive value of 89%. And the predictive accuracy of the test is the number of true positives and true negatives divided by the total number of people in this population or who took this test. So that gives us a predictive accuracy of 85%. That means the stress test is correct 85% of the time. That means 15% of the time it's going to give a false result. So here's another example of the interpretation of predictive values. This happened to be a practice example of the probability of atypical cervical cells in a woman who's had an abnormal test, a positive result on her pap smear. Given the prevalence of atypical cervical cells in a population of 100,000 women, the positive predictive value of a positive result was 0.6%, and the negative predictive value was 99.9%. These numbers are interpreted as that a person with a positive pap smear has actually a very tiny chance, a positive predictive value of 0.6% of truly having the disease. While a person with a negative test, so a negative pap smear, is almost certainly disease-free. That's the negative predictive value of 99.9%. This is just trying to show you that a negative pap smear, you're most likely to be disease-free while a positive pap smear at this first level is a very still a very tiny chance that there's anything wrong with you. Let me just reiterate the difference between definitions. The difference between the definition of sensitivity and specificity and predictive values has been a confusing point for many students because it sounds like they're saying the same thing. And while they're related, they're interpreted differently. See if the following helps clarify the difference between them. Sensitivity and specificity refer to how well a test accurately identifies the patient with and without disease. Reality is that the patient has the disease or does not have the disease. The test Gives, is the ability to accurately produce a result that is consistent with reality. In other words, that the ill person shows an abnormal result and is correctly diagnosed as ill, and it's converse. So how well does the test identify true abnormality, and how well does the test identify normal? That's sensitivity and specificity. Positive predictive value and negative predictive value 
refer to how well the test results accurately identify the patient with and without the disease. So a test result is either positive or negative, and the reality is the patient either has or does not have the disease. So again, given the results of this test, does the patient have disease? If the test result is abnormal, therefore, what's the probability that the patient really has the disease and its converse? So hopefully that helps. Let's talk about pretest probability. Clinicians need to estimate the pretest probability of disease in order to choose the most accurate diagnostic testing choices. Pretest probability is the prevalence of, of the disease, and it helps us understand how likely we think it is that our patient has a problem before any further testing is done. This has been described as your clinical suspicion. Your clinical suspicion is based on patient data, the history and physical exam, your clinical experience with similar, with similar patients, and it may be based on literature that has studied the predictive value of these features for a given disorder. Pretest probabilities can differ for the same target disorder because of geographic location and care settings, for example, in primary, secondary, and tertiary care. A high probability of disease before the test, in other words, a high pretest probability, will help confirm the diagnosis if the test result, result is positive, though a negative test result does not rule out disease. A normal test value helps confirm the absence of disease when there's a low probability of disease before the test is performed. However, a positive result does not help in ruling in the disease. Using the 2 by 2 table, the pretest probability is calculated as the number of people who actually have the disease out of the total number in the population. So we've been talking about sensitivity and specificity and predictive values of tests, but many authors contend that the clinician's use of likelihood ratios, or LRs, will be the most helpful in determining how useful a test will be in ascertaining the patient's diagnosis. LRs are calculated using the sensitivity and the specificity results for the test, the sign, or the symptom in question. Again, the information the LR provides is similar to the other diagnostic measures we've covered. However, the interpretation of the result is based on the association of a specific test result with the likelihood or the odds of disease. It's another subtle difference. Every test result has an associated likelihood ratio that can be calculated. So again, the likelihood ratio represents the likelihood of obtaining this result in the presence of disease compared to obtaining the same result in the absence of disease. And it's a ratio of that probability that a given diagnostic test result will be expected for a patient with the target disorder rather than for a patient without the target disorder. Likelihood ratios, or LRs, are used to help the advanced clinician refine their differential diagnosis. The clinician starts with their clinical suspicion of what disease the patient is likely experiencing, 
based on the patient history and physical exam findings. So that's the pretest probability of disease. Then diagnostic and laboratory testing is then conducted, and then the results are used to whittle down that differential list and there, therefore decrease the uncertainty of the final diagnosis. The value of the physical exam findings and the test results can be compared using the LRs. LRs are the preferred parameter to help the advanced clinician rule in or rule out a specific diagnosis. Likelihood ratios are easily calculated and derived from the sensitivity and the specificity of the specific test result, sign, or symptom. Every test result or clinical sign or patient symptom has an LR associated with it. Therefore, LRs are used to assess the value of a diagnostic test, sign, or symptom and are similar to the concept of relative risk. A positive LR is denoted as LR with the plus sign, is used when the test result is positive or the patient exhibits the particular sign or symptom. A negative LR, LR with a minus sign next to it, is used when the test result is negative or when the patient does not exhibit the sign or the symptom. So the higher or lower the LR, the more or less strongly that result is associated with the disease that you're evaluating. So you obviously want to choose a test that will provide you with the best, most accurate result. That is the one that makes the most difference in reducing your uncertainty of the diagnosis. The test with the highest or the lowest LRs will produce the most change in the probability of disease. So let's look at how to calculate the likelihood ratios. We have our typical two by two table. Again, remember that sensitivity is the number of true positives divided by the number of true positives plus the number of false negatives. Specificity is calculated as the number of true negatives divided by the number of true negatives plus the false positives. Once you calculate the sensitivity and specificity, the LRs are easy to calculate. The likelihood ratio for a positive test result, or again, sign or symptom that is exhibited by the patient, is the sensitivity divided by one minus the specificity. And that's an increase in the odds then of having the condition, an LR positive. The likelihood ratio for a negative result, or the LR negative, is one minus the sensitivity divided by the specificity. If we use the example from the stress test, remember the sensitivity was 90% and the specificity was 80%. So the likelihood of a positive test result in a patient with the disease versus a patient without the disease is calculated as the sensitivity divided by 1 minus the specificity. So that would be calculated as 0 0.90, 90%, right, is 0 0.90, divided by 1 minus 0 0.80, or the specificity. That gives you a positive likelihood ratio of 4.5. We'll interpret this in a minute. The negative likelihood ratio is 1 minus the sensitivity 
divided by the specificity. So in this case, it would be 1 minus 0.9 divided by 0.8. And that gives us a negative likelihood ratio of 0.125. So now what? Now we need to see if our initial suspicion of disease in this patient, again, your pretest probability, can be either verified or dismissed, or if we need to do more testing. So now we want to be able to calculate our post-test probability of our diagnosis. Just as an FYI again, there are apps that you can get to calculate post-test probability that you can download to your smartphone or to your tablet device. All you'll need to do is input your pretest probability and the LRs of the test that you're looking at. And if you don't know the LRs, a lot of these apps, if you put in the sensitivity and the specificity of that test, it'll calculate the LR for you. The program then will apply your likelihood ratios to your pretest probability of disease, so how certain you were of the diagnosis or what you thought the patient had before you started testing, and it'll give you a post-test probability. That is the the probability that the patient has the disease or the condition now that you have the test results. LRs greater than 10 or less than 0.1 will incur the most change in your post-test probability of disease. Likelihood ratios of around 1 indicate that no useful information for ruling in or ruling out the diagnosis has been produced from the clinical findings because again, one doesn't help us very much, right? So LRs greater than 10 or less than 0.1 are gonna cause the largest changes in the likelihood of disease. LRs of five to 10 or 0.1 to 0.2 will cause moderate changes in the likelihood. LRs of two to five or 0.2 to 0.2 to 0.5 will cause small changes. LRs greater than 1 but less than 2 or greater than 0.5 and less than 1 will cause tiny changes. And again, LRs of 1 will cause no changes in all. LRs are generated from many studies and can be found in the literature or other evidence sources. And you can find likelihood ratios for common tests and common signs and symptoms in textbooks. There are really good textbooks on physical diagnosis that provide LRs. You can find them online. They're really, you just need to search for them. I gave you an example of likelihood ratios for, um, this was an ICU study looking at weaning patients, and it looked at the frequency of respirations over tidal volume, and it's called the rapid shallow breathing index. And, and I gave you just two different tables showing you how they changed the category of the, the index to less than 80, less than 80 to over 80 to less than 100 to over 100, just to show you how the sensitivity and specificity changed and how the weaning attempts changed based on a lower cutoff versus a higher cutoff. And you can see the likelihood ratios in those tables also. I'm also going to give you a table that recaps the subtleties of these different diagnostic parameters. I gave you the diagnostic parameter 
which could be a test, sign, or a symptom. And the columns are sensitivity and specificity, the positive and the negative predictive value, and a like positive and a negative likelihood ratio. In the second column, then the subtlety of are we looking at the test, are we looking at a result, or are we looking at the presence or absence of a specific finding? And then how we interpret that result as far as the patient having disease or not, the probability of disease, and the odds of the, of the disease. So I think that hopefully will be helpful in identifying those subtle differences. So we're talking about post-test probability now. After we do the diagnostic test, we then can apply those properties of the test result to our pretest probability in order to derive the post-test probability. I've given you a diagram of the test treatment threshold that helps you consider whether or not you need to continue further testing or whether or not you should treat your patient or whether or not you need to consider an alternative diagnosis. Again, based on your post-test probability findings. Below a 5% post-test probability of disease, you need to consider another disease process. If your post-test probability comes out between 5 and 89%, at that point, usually you have to keep testing until the probabilities become more definite and then at or above 90%, the post-test probability that the patient has the disease is high and therefore you're probably going to treat this patient. The test treatment thresholds will change based on the disease you're considering and the consequences of treating or not treating the patient. Remember that the whole time the reason we're doing the lab or the diagnostic tests is to try to decrease our uncertainty with the diagnosis. We're trying to decide what the patient has using all the information presented so far. So that makes sense, right? That you want to conduct the most accurate test possible, the one that will help move you either below the test threshold or past the treatment threshold. That's why it's important to consider these concepts. If you know the likelihood ratio of the diagnostic test, clinical sign, or patient symptom, the pretest probability can be converted to a post-test probability using a tool known as Fagan's nomogram. Once you know the post-test probability of disease, then you can decide whether or not you need to further test the patient or whether you can go ahead and treat or consider another diagnosis. So Fagan's nomogram is just a quick way to derive the post-test probability of disease if you don't use a tool, an app, or something in your smartphone. So all you do here is you plot your clinical suspicion of disease, so your pretest probability is in the right-hand column. You plot the likelihood ratio of the test or the sign or symptom that you're using in the second column, and then you connect the dots and you draw a straight line from the pretest probability point through whatever the appropriate likelihood ratio value was, and then you see where it inter intersects with the post-test probability. In the example I gave you on the handout, your, the clinician's suspicion of disease was 50%, so 50-50 as to whether they had the disease or not. The positive likelihood ratio for the test that we were using 
was 7. So we're saying that the patient had a positive result on the test, and that positive likelihood ratio is 7 for that particular test. And then you draw a straight line through, and you get roughly a post-test probability of 88%. At that point, again, depending on the disease that you're looking at, you either go ahead and maybe still consider testing the patient, or maybe you're close enough to that 90% line that you go ahead and start treating the patient. In summary, you assess your patient, you generate a pretest probability from the clinical assessment, the knowledge of the prevalence of the disease in the community, your practice stats, etc. You ask clinical questions, you require information about the test sign or symptom characteristics, so that is those diagnostic parameters, sensitivity, specificity, likelihood ratios if you can get them, and then you apply the evidence. You conduct the best lab, lab or diagnostic test that you can, you review the results, and then you plot the positive or negative likelihood ratios as appropriate and determine the post-test probability of disease. Then you decide, is more testing needed? Should you consider some other disease or should you treat? This ends this series of introductory podcasts on statistics for evidence-based practice. Thanks for listening. You can find the show notes at nursingeducationexpert.com forward slash EBP forward slash 003. Please share a comment about this episode at the same link. The Evidence-Based Practice Podcast is a production of nursingeducationexpert.com and is sponsored by CJT Consulting and Education. Have a great week.